0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers.
1: This week on Science for the People, we'll meet the authors of three big books that use stunning images to tell stories about the history of science. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I'm joined by Dr. Paul Taylor, who has worked in the Natural History Museum's Earth Sciences Department for more than 35 years. His research focuses on fossils and living bryozoans, especially their evolution and ecology, and he's published more than 300 scientific papers about them and other aspects of natural history, including fossil folklore. He's here to talk about his book, A History of Life in 100 Fossils. Welcome, Paul. Hi. Now, first off, people can't see the book, which is unfortunate because it is absolutely gorgeous. So uh, where did
2: the photos come from? Well, the majority of them were actually taken of specimens that are in my museum, the Natural History Museum in London. And they were taken by, we have a very good photographer here called Harry Taylor. He's no relation of mine at all. But I wish he was because he could take photographs of my family. He's brilliant. He is extremely good. You wouldn't believe how scrappy some of the specimens actually appear in real life. And he's brought them uh, to vivid Technicolor with his pictures. They're they're really beautiful.
1: They really are. I'm wondering about the book's format as well. Why did you decide on that?
2: Well, we were inspired by a book, um, which uh, some people may have read already. It was published a few years ago by the director of the British Museum, the British Museum in Bloomsbury. So that's the Museum of Antiquities. And it's a book called A History of the World in a Hundred Objects. This is by the guy called Neil McGregor. And uh, I was walking uh, on the beach in Panama City with my co-author a few years ago. And we were talking about McGregor's book. And we thought this would be a really good format to transfer to do a book on fossils, A History of Life in a Hundred Fossils. And... Uh, When I got back, I approached the publications people at the Natural History Museum. They thought it was a great idea. They in turn approached the Smithsonian Institution, who are our co-publishers. They thought it was a good idea. So off we went. Well, and how did you choose which fossils to include? That was quite... Difficult. We had a lot of criteria in our mind. We wanted the book to give a reasonable picture of how life has changed through Earth since the earliest fossils. We also wanted to include fossils which were attractive. Some fossils tend to be grey objects on slightly darker grey backgrounds and really are almost impossible to illustrate and make look attractive. We also wanted fossils that were landmarks in some way, like the first bird, Archaeopteryx, or that illustrated principles of evolution, um, such as punctuated equilibrium. That's a theory of the way evolution proceeds in terms of having short, sharp bursts of change and then periods of stasis or very little change. We were also mindful of the fact that we should try and be even-handed, so although both Aaron Day, my co-author and I, a specialist on bryozoans, we only have one Briar zone in the book, um, whereas we have a lot more dinosaurs. <laughs> naturally,
1: well, are the images also in evolutionary order?
2: They're more or less in time order. Yes, so we start out with the oldest fossils at the beginning and work up right to the um, the last ancestor in the lineage leading to modern man. So, yes, they are pretty much that way. There's a slight little bit of shuffling around in a few places, but generally speaking, yes. Well, let's begin at the
1: beginning. Um, Pre-Cambrian Earth, what are your favorite fossils from that period?
2: Okay, well, I should just say the pre-Cambrian is a vast interval of geological time. Right from the beginning of the Earth, which was around 4,600 million years ago, up until about 550 million years ago. So it's a vast interval of time, but there are not so many fossils, and most of the fossils that we actually have in the Precambrian are of tiny little microbial organisms like bacteria basically. And the first one that we have in the book has particular interest for me because it's a fossil that was described by uh, William Shop or Bill Shop who is a professor at UCLA, Los Angeles, in 1993. And at the time that he was working on this fossil, he was on sabbatical in the Natural History Museum, and he was living in the room right next door to me. So uh, I had a lot to do with him and a lot of contact with him at the time. And this is actually an example of what is thought to be the world's oldest fossils. And these are tiny little microbes, just a few microns, tens of microns in size from the apex church in Western Australia. They believe to be round about uh, 3.5 billion years old. And they don't look particularly spectacular. But of course, they are of immense interest. I, I think that's the
1: way. Well, yes, I, I was actually wondering about the red stromatolite fossil. That's
2: rather more spectacular. So, um, Well, it's prettier, but it's, it's also
1: arguably one of the most important organisms to have ever existed. So there's that. Yes.
2: Well, a stromatolite is not really in itself an organism. What a stromatolite is, is a micro community or a community of microbial organisms that builds up layered masses of sediments. And the particular one in the book is really beautiful because it's very red in color. Um, It's very rich in iron. And at that time in the world's oceans, there was an awful lot of iron around. And that got trapped in this microbial mat as it was gradually building up on the seabed.
1: So why were these organisms so important in evolutionary history?
2: Well, they were the dominant, the stromatolites and the stromatolite building organisms, of which you had a whole community of different bacteria and cyanobacteria and archaeobacteria. These were very important in really setting the scene for what happened later on. They, in particular, many of them were photosynthetic. So they introduced oxygen into the waters and hence into the atmosphere. So they really set the scene for more complex animals and plants that appeared later. Okay,
1: let's move to the Paleozoic era before i give you a chance to talk about your favorite it's my show so i, I really i really want to point out one that i love uh it's a, it's an image of a trilobite it's particularly striking mainly because of its eyes
2: we actually have two trilobites in the book but the one that you mean is um a really nice one which has these tower-like eyes trilobites are very interesting they're um, an extinct group of arthropods so roughly um closely related to things like modern-day crustaceans, crabs and the like, but completely extinct. And they had, the great majority of them actually had well-developed eyes. And the eyes are preserved because the lenses in the eyes of trilobites are made of a mineral called calcite. And calcite is very easily fossilizable. So whereas the lenses of human eyes, for instance, would not preserve as fossils normally, The lenses of trilobite eyes made of this mineral are routinely preserved as fossils. So we can learn a lot about the vision of trilobites.
1: It says in the book that there are about 500 lenses on each eye, and you can see almost every lens in this image.
2: Yes, they have compound eyes like modern insects. And yes, the the lenses are each um, polygonal, really hexagonal, and they're arranged in a series of columns along these... um, surface of the eyes. And actually, the eyes are pointing outwards. So the trilobite was pretty good at seeing what was coming towards it from the front, the sides and the back, but didn't really look upwards. It was living on the seabed and he couldn't see what was above it very well.
1: Well, I'd also like to point out that as, uh, as with many of the images in this book, it is the stuff of nightmares.
2: <laughs> Uh, yes, luckily it's quite small. Horrible. It's horrible. But it's rather small, so I don't think you'd need to worry too much about it attacking you, unlike some of the larger creatures.
1: This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Paul Taylor about his book, A History of Life in 100 Fossils. So would you like to talk about the Mesozoic era, or did you have more from the Paleozoic era? Because I wouldn't want to not let you talk about something that's your favourite fossil.
2: Maybe I'll talk about something which... Provides a link into the Mesozoic. Uh, on one of the spreads of the book, we have a rather nice picture of a group of animals called blastoids. Blastoids are echinoderms and they are related to modern starfishes and modern sea urchins, but are a group which, like the trilobites, are no longer with us. And like the trilobites, the last of the blastoids lived about 250 million years ago. And at that time, there was a mass extinction and a huge proportion of the animals and plants that lived on the earth, both on the land surface and in the seas, became extinct. And in some cases, entire, not just single species, but in some places, entire groups met their demise and trilobites were one and blastoids were another.
1: Well, now we we should mention the Archaeopteryx, because you already did, and and I love it. And particularly because uh, the fossil that is pictured is one that we actually, uh, many of us have already seen.
2: Yes, you may have uh, seen this picture in other books and uh, also perhaps on display in the Natural History Museum in London. Um, This is one of only about a dozen well-preserved Archaeopteryx specimens known from anywhere in the world. Archaeopteryx is a bird and most people believe it to be the earliest known bird. It's about 147 million years old and it's collected from a place called Solnhofen in Bavaria in southern Germany and it's very remarkable because it has very clear impressions of the feathers uh, including a tail with feathers on it which the tail is bony it has a uh, the, the vertebral column goes down into the tail and the feathers are attached to that, which is something we don't find in modern birds, which have very short or no tails at all.
1: Well, I was wondering, it's, it, it says in the book that Archaeopteryx was considered to be the perfect evolutionary missing link. Yes. Why was that?
2: Well, it has some features which are like those of, of reptiles and in particular of some dinosaurs. And it has other features which are typical of birds, like the feathers. It has a wishbone like a bird. It has teeth, rather like a reptile, rather like some of the dinosaurs that were its forerunners. And the bony tail, which is more dinosaurian than it is bird-like. So it was considered to be a good example of missing link, and um, Indeed, Huxley, who was often known as Darwin's bulldog, who was championing the uh, theory of evolution for Darwin, he took up Archaeopteryx a lot and promoted this as an example. At the time that Darwin wrote The Origin of Species in 1859, Archaeopteryx was not known. Darwin would dearly love to have known about it. It was only published a couple of years later, but it would have been marvellous. If he, if he had he known about it, I'm sure he would have highlighted it very much in the book.
1: Now, I'm very curious, at this point in your career, do you hate the words missing link or do you just find them problematic?
2: I think there is a tendency or there has been a tendency amongst some paleontologists to try and fit every single fossil into a lineage leading up to some modern organism and consider it as a missing link. But, of course, evolution is very complex. It's a tree. It's not a single line. And an awful lot of the fossils we get are dead ends. There are no way are they missing links. And actually to recognise something which is strictly speaking a missing link between two species is really very hard to do. The methods of doing that are a little bit suspect. So we can never really say that things are absolutely the missing link or even a missing link. But it's sort of quite useful in that um, the general idea that there are Things out there in the fossil record that provide some kind of bridge between the animals and plants that we see today, different types of animals and plants we see today. That is quite useful, that there are things in the fossil record that bridge gaps that otherwise we might not be able to know about.
1: Okay, it's your turn.
2: What is your favorite from this era? Certainly one of my favorites is an ammonite fossil, um, and it's a fossil called uh, Pictonia bailei. It's interesting because the specimen that's in the book is one that we have here in the Natural History Museum. It forms part of the collection of a geologist called William Smith. This is a very important year for William Smith. It's the 200th anniversary of the publication of William Smith's geological map. He was the first person anywhere in the world to produce a nationwide geological map. So in 1850, he produced this wonderful map that has England, Wales, and the southern parts of Scotland with all the geological strata uh, delineated in different colours as we have in modern geological maps. And the reason that William Smith was able to recognise the strata and trace them across country from places places where there may be no rocks exposed on the surface, so he was going from one quarry to another one that might be many miles away, But he could recognize that it was the same level, the same stratum, the same bed, by the fossils that were contained in it. And this Pictonia bailei is one of the fossils that he found in a deposit called the Kimmeridge clay. And he was able to correlate, recognize strata of the same level across the country using this kind of fossil.
1: Okay, we have a a very few minutes left (laughs) to cover the entire Cenozoic era. Uh, So, I I know. Um, So, which ones would you like to
2: point out? A thing that I, I really like is the giant moa. Moas are an extinct group of birds. They became extinct in historical times, which inhabited New Zealand. So, they're related to the emus and the ostriches, basically flightless, giant flightless birds. And we have very, a lot of very nice specimens here in the collection. The one in the um, book shows the the lower leg and the, the toe bones of a, of a really magnificent specimen that we have in the collection. One of the things that's very interesting to me about the moa is although they're extinct in New Zealand, if you go to New Zealand and look at the vegetation, you will see some plants still living which have moa Resistant adaptations. So there is a plant called the lancewood, which grows up as rather an unappetizing shrubby tree with, or bush rather, with very long strap like leaves until it gets to a particular height above which the mower could not uh, graze. When it gets that height, it suddenly flourishes into a proper fully fledged tree with lots of nice nutritious leaves. So it's showing us that even today, for some of these recently extinct species, some modern species, retain adaptations that were evolved in order to, in this case, to counteract being eaten by the mower bird.
1: If, if I can intrude again, I yeah. really want to make sure that we get your comment about the Laetoli footprints, because I think that's my favorite photograph.
2: So the Laetoli footprints were discovered in Tanzania, Um, in 1976, and excavated by Mary Leakey, who was a very famous anthropologist. So these are footprints of some um, ancestors or close relatives of modern man, probably in the order of uh, four or five million years old. They show some um, individuals that were walking across some damp ashes, and they impressed their feet into the surface of the ash, Um, Later on, the ash hardened, dried up and hardened, and uh, was then buried beneath further layers of ash until it was excavated by Mary Leakey. They show very clearly that these individuals were bipedal. They were walking upright on two feet, not on all four limbs like like, um, most modern apes. And they also you can work out things like the gait, uh, the stride length and all this kind of stuff. These actually are an example, and we have several in the book, of a trace fossil. So we don't actually have the bones or the teeth of these animals. All we have is the impression in the sediment. It's a particular kind of fossil called a trace fossil. It seems as though there was um, a smaller and a larger individual, possibly a male and a female, and that they were walking very close to one another, maybe even arm in arm. And then there's a smaller individual carrying something heavy on the side, possibly a child. So there's quite a lot that you could actually try to um, infer from this. Maybe this was a family It's buried. This, this, As I said earlier, these footprints are actually in damp ash and they're buried by further layers of ash. Maybe they were trying to escape from an erupting volcano. We just don't know.
1: No, although that could possibly be considered rampant speculation, I very much like it, (laughs) so (laughs) we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Paul, for being here.
2: Okay, it's a pleasure.
1: And that was Paul Taylor, co-author of the book, A History of Life in 100 Fossils, and uh, you should know that it is coming out in paperback later this year. And we've linked to it and Paul on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca.
0: Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find
3: links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show.
0: Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Julie Halls. Julie has worked at the National Archives for more than six years and is the record specialist for registered designs. She's studying for a PhD on 19th century registered designs at Burbeck College, University of London, and has written a book about some of the more eccentric designs, inventions that didn't change the world. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. So uh, maybe we should start by what the book is. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
4: This is the first time most people will have been able to see these totally unique designs. Not everyone could get to the National Archives to see the original documents, which are in any case huge and very difficult to handle. But they're designs that were registered for copyrights under the 1843 Utility Designs Act, which gave people the opportunity to copyright designs, which was much quicker and cheaper than the complicated and expensive patent system. Um, But this inspired all sorts of um, amateur inventors as well as professionals to copyright their designs and to do this they had to submit two copies to the designs registry and one copy was pasted into an enormous leather-bound volume um, and they're the records that we now have at the National Archives. They've been virtually unseen really except for a few determined researchers for the last 150 years or so. so. this is really a chance for people to see them for the first time.
0: It seems like in this era, especially in in Great Britain, where the the industrial revolutions were completely, were really underway, um, what was it about this era that spurred so much interest in inventing? It seems like you say there were a lot of amateur inventors really getting interested in this kind of work.
4: It was a period when people were really excited about all the huge technological advances being made um, like the steam engine, railways, and electric telegraph. And Britain was a great manufacturing and trading nation. There was an enormous pride in that. And men like George Stevenson and Isambard Kingdom Brunel were national heroes. And this generated a widespread fascination with the way things worked, much more so than we seem to have today. And there was really a culture of wanting to learn, as, a strong, as well as a strong belief in making your way in the world. And ordinary people attended lectures on technology and subscribed to magazines and journals that described how inventions worked. And all this gave rise to a culture that encouraged would-be inventors to see if they could make a success of their own ideas. And although many of the ones featured in this book seem a bit misguided now, they reflect the enthusiasm of
0: the period. It's really interesting. Um, The word inventions, I sort of conjures up big devices with lots of cogs and wheels and and mechanics. But what was really cool about this book is there's a lot of kind of little handheld gadgets or pieces that would slip sometimes unobtrusively into everyday life. Um, And a lot of these seem a bit more novel than necessarily practical.
4: Yes, I think this was partly because of the huge expansion of the Victorian middle classes, um, which meant that there was a large section of society with more disposable income than ever before. Um, They had money to spend and at the same time they were very keen on, on gadgets and especially items with multiple functions. Um, And at the same time, middle class men had really been identified by advertisers as an untapped market. And uh, they seem to have a particular interest in these gadgets. Um, So we see things with multiple functions like the design for a cigar holding pencil case knife, which has a snappy title, and um, the cigar cane, which allows you to Your cigars inside a cane so that you didn't have to carry a cigar box around. And they were really very interested in in novelties.
0: It's interesting. Uh, The title of this collection in this book is Inventions That Didn't Change the World. Um, But a lot of world changing inventions happened in the same era. And there were a lot of ways the world itself was changing. And it's interesting how some of the inventions we see in this book kind of parallel or tell us a little bit about what was going on in that period.
4: Yes, and as I said, a, a lot of the population had more disposable income than ever before. And there was a there was a great surge in interest in the home, um, which was seen as a, a refuge from industry and the centre of family life. And we see a lot of gadgets for the home, like prototype dishwashers and accessories for the bathroom, which was actually still a new room in the house. Um, and the area of medicine is very interesting because we see inventions that reflect the huge progress that was being made um, like inhalers for administering anaesthetic Um, and at the same time old traditional forms of medicine like um, bloodletting still persisted so we see registrations for objects like artificial leeches which really sort of reflect the previous era Um, and then there are items that reflect new ways of working like there are numerous designs for the types of alarm clock, um, which was kind of a new thing that hadn't been needed before when people just got up with the sunrise.
0: You mentioned artificial leeches. Um, this one really surprised me when I, when I found it in the book. I just assumed that leeches were really common and we wouldn't need to invent something to do their job. Is that, is that not accurate?
4: Well, um, bloodletting was still very widely practised and um, an imbalance of bodily fluids or humours was thought to be responsible for a range of ailments. And it was thought that inflammations were caused by an excess of blood. So leeches were literally used to treat everything from headaches to prostate problems. Um, And this actually resulted in what was referred to as a mania for leeches and their overuse resulted in a shortage Um, and at the same time people started to become more squeamish about their use i mean they were actually used inside the body attached to pieces of string to stop them uh, breaking loose so it's understandable that uh, an artificial leech might seem a more attractive option and then so there are several registrations for different types of artificial leech.
0: Now that you put it that way, it does seem like a better option. (laughs) Absolutely. How did you pick the inventions to feature in this book? Because I can imagine in that that big leather-bound book that you have at the archives that there are many, many, many more than we see here.
4: Yes, just for the 40-year period covered by this particular act, there are about 9,000 um, and quite a few of them are relatively sensible inventions that we probably would have seen you know, illustrated before um, it's really these more quirky ones that we focused on for the book, um, but yes it was quite difficult to make the decision and a, a lot of quite mad inventions had to be left out But um, we tried to choose ones that had a, a, a social history attached to them, however eccentric they might seem
0: so this book is divided into sort of sections based on some of the social changes that were happening uh, during the period. And it helps us kind of spot the patterns in the inventions. Can you tell us a little bit about what um, these designs and the ideas that they reflect, tell us about what it was like to live in this time and place?
4: Well, um, I think, it, again, as I was saying before, it, the inventions reflect new ways of working. And one particularly notable one was the growth of the lower middle class and the clerks in particular became a huge new uh, workforce sector. And they they had quite a hard time because they were very poorly paid in general and they often earned less than a manual worker might earn. But they were expected to look very respectable in their job and they always had to wear a white shirt, black coat and top hat. And it was very difficult for them to afford it. Um, And so we see a lot of items like... um, shirt fronts which were just sort of used to cover up dirty or scruffy shirts or a, a shirt that wasn't white um, and collars that can be attached um, made of celluloid and other materials like that and we see other money saving things like reversible trousers which had a different color on each side so it saved having to buy two different pairs and the unfitropolax boot which was um a boot with a metal rotating heel, which made sure that the heel wore evenly all the way round and made it last longer. And this was really to cater for a new
3: workforce.
0: You mentioned before about uh, that there were quite a number of designs for different types of alarm clocks. So previously, I suppose, people didn't really have to worry about getting up before the sun rose.
4: No, that's right. I mean, um, when agriculture was the main uh, sector in the economy, they just got up um with the dawn and and works until dusk um but with office work people had to make sure they were up at a certain time and and so um we see these new types of alarm clock and one of them is quite um eccentric and actually involves having to tie a piece of tape to your arm or your leg and um a weight drops at the given time and and tugs your arm or leg to wake you up in the morning and there's another one which is uh, powered by a spring system so a candle burns down um and and at a certain point a bell rings to wake the person up the factory workers wouldn't so much have had this problem because often a klaxon would go off in the factory and as they all live quite nearby that that would wake them up at a, a given time
0: It was quite fascinating to go through this book, like you say, with the alarm clocks, the ingenious ways people had of getting around not having electricity, which I guess I knew, but when you see the inventions and some of the lengths they had to go to, like with the alarm clock, it really kind of hits home what life without electricity must have been like.
4: Yes, everything was very um, mechanical and it's
0: just amazing how ingenious the Victorians were really. It's also quite interesting as well to um, look through the book and find inventions from that time that were now i guess reinventing um, I'm thinking of the standing sitting desk, which was in the book
4: I think that's the one that was actually made for um, shoemakers um, so that they could sort of stand up and sit down and um, yeah sort of be far more comfortable than they might otherwise have been and yes it does um, make you think perhaps it was a step on the way to all the ergonomic furniture we have today.
0: There also seems with this middle class to be a rise in household and gardening gadgets. I'm going to use the word gadget because some of these are definitely not practical. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the knife and fork cleaner, which looks like it might take longer to do the washing up. Yes, absolutely. There are quite a number of inventions which look so complicated that
4: you think surely it would have just be easier to, to do it the traditional way. Um, another one is the um, hair brushing machine, which um, looks amazingly huge and complicated, but um, long, luxuriant hair was considered a great asset for women and they were advised to brush it at least a 100 times a day. And so evidently some of them found this too much of a strain and so they invented a, a machine to do it for them, which... Um, We're told that by turning the handle, a greater velocity can be obtained than by using a hand brush, but um, it actually looks quite dangerous and will take up an awful lot of space in the bedroom, I think.
0: I was going to say, say. that one looks... Uh, not entirely safe. I don't know that I would stick my hair in that machine. <laughs> no, I think sure. you might regress it. So I also want to talk about talking about the lack of electricity. There's also a lot of concern around fire and flames and also heating things requires um, non-electric opportunities. I'm thinking of the portable bed warmer in particular here, which looks like an incredibly dangerous thing to put in your bed sheets.
4: Um, yes it really does Um, the issue of fire was a a big problem in the 19th century Um, there tended to be fewer fires that affected large sections of the city and that was mainly because houses and public buildings were being built from less flammable materials but the number of disastrous fires in individual buildings like um, factories and places of entertainment and in the home increased and This was because of the use of gas and oil lamps and new technologies like boilers for heating water, which sometimes exploded, as did the new cooking stoves using kitchens. Um, But yes, when you look at the hair-raising inventions like the illuminated night clock, which was um, powered by a candle and a portable bed warmer, which uh, is basically an oil lamp that projects heat through what's described as a gauze chimney, and uh, it's
0: presumably intended to be placed underneath the bed, you you think the heat would be minimal and the risk of a fire would be huge. There's also uh, quite a number of safety devices that you highlight in the book, both around the usage of candles and also escaping a building, and some of those look to be like it would be a fairly harrowing experience to use some of those.
4: Yes, and one of them is a a very flimsy-looking object, It's a kind of flat pack thing that you open up and somebody's supposed to be able to jump out of the window and and land in this thing because it looks extremely unreliable, to say the least. And uh, a lot of them are so complicated. They're operated by ropes and pulleys and the person has to get into a basket and, you know, be on the outside of the building and be lowered down, so I think you'd have to be pretty
0: intrepid to to get into one of those really. I suppose the fire behind you would probably encourage you, but just because these items were designed and invented, does that necessarily mean that they were sold and actually purchased and used? It's very difficult for us to tell now, you know, unless it's something that we actually
4: um, can find in the literature of the time. It's difficult to know, but um, I suspect that a lot of these um, didn't get beyond the prototype. There are some that we know did come into production and one example is um, the hand hard labour machine which um, is a reminder of conditions in 19th century prisons Um, and unlike the other designs in the book it was intended to produce rather than save work Um, and it was Um, invented at a time when hard labour was introduced partly as an alternative to the death penalty and the hand hard labour machine had a crank um, which could be worked by a prisoner alone in a cell um, who might be in solitary confinement and they had to complete 10,000 turns of the crank in a day and warders could tighten it making it harder to turn and rather depressingly, this is something that really did catch on and was very widely used in British prisons at that time.
0: So it was really designed just to punish somebody. There was no practical purpose to it. It didn't create anything. It didn't crush anything. It didn't actually produce anything. Is that correct?
4: That's right. Whereas in the early days, hard labor meant doing something useful like sort of building roads. um, Later on, it, it just became a completely pointless activity. And the idea was that it would encourage um, the habit of work in prisoners, but also that it would act as a deterrent. Well, it was referred to actually as the maniac making system because it, it really drove people crazy to be in solitary confinement doing this completely pointless activity.
0: I can imagine. Yeah. Was there a reason that the more practical version of hard labor was withdrawn as an option? Or why, why did they stop using prisoner labor to actually build things?
4: Um, I'm not really sure, but I I think, you know, it it was partly just to increase the the punishment element, really, and um, the idea of um, solitary confinement really caught on at this time, and, and so I think it was tied in with that.
0: Um, we were talking before about clothing, and when we cross clothing with gadgets, um, we mentioned the cigars in a cane, but there are a number of fascinating inventions surrounding top hats, which I love.
4: Yes, absolutely. Um, throughout the 19th century, no respectable man would go outside without wearing a top hat, um, particularly middle class men. And so we see a lot of inventions around um, storage, but also um, other long forgotten problems associated with wearing top hats because they were actually quite hot and heavy and since most men also wore hair oil at that time quite an unpleasant atmosphere could build up inside the hat and uh, there are a number of designs for solutions to the problem um, including the bona fide ventilating hat which um, has a kind of grill system uh, built into it which is intended to and carry off perspiration from the interior, as the description tells us. Um, but we also see hats that can be sort of squashed down to fit under a table in front of you and, and various sort of storage solutions, because they were pretty unwieldy objects to carry around.
0: Also, the hats were used to sometimes, or uh, proposed to sometimes, store items related to the hat, uh, such as a hat brush. Yes,
4: absolutely. There's also a, a design for keeping cigars um, actually inside your top hat. So, um, yes, there's, there's quite a few um, storage solutions <laughs> within the
0: hat itself. That's interesting because now that we talk about the general atmosphere of the hat space, as it were, uh, keeping your cigars there, I'm not, I'm not sure that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm not
4: sure an aficionado would uh, want to do that.
0: So we don't have a lot of time left, but I'm just wondering, Is did you have a, looking through the book, did you have a favorite invention, one that really stood out to you and is sort of your, 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 the one you go back to all the time?
4: One of my favorite inventions is the flying or aerial machine for the Arctic regions, which um, looks really magical. And it's one of those designs that looks completely bizarre, but makes sense when you know what was going on at that period because the newspapers at that time were full of stories about Arctic exploration and the exploits of explorers. And in particular, there was a race to find a trade route through the Northwest Passage, and this was the subject of sensational news stories. And at the same time, a prize had been offered to find the lost expedition of Sir John Franklin, which disappeared while searching for the route. Um, So the date of registration of this design in 1855 suggests The inventor thought he'd found a solution to navigating arctic terrain although in reality the first successful airship wasn't actually built until 40 years later but this one really looks like something from a fantasy film the text tells us that the machine is operated by treadles which turn the wheels um, and there's a suspended room with beds for three people um, and metal plates underneath so it can be propelled along the ice. So it's it's quite a contraption.
0: Do you think the person who created that device or designed that device had been to the Arctic and knew the challenges? Or do you just think they were looking at the news stories and kind of imagining what it would be like? Because it does seem to um, deal with some of the major issues.
4: It tries to deal with the major issues, but I think it's very unlikely that he'd ever actually been there. And um, I think it it would probably have been completely useless, but um, as an object, the design itself is just absolutely amazing. And the description that goes with it is quite mind-boggling, really. And he'd really thought it through, but uh, I don't think it would ever have actually got off the ground.
0: Julie, it's been wonderful to have you here. And it's a gorgeous book, really beautiful and really fascinating to read through. Um, it opens the door to a, a time and a place. And anybody who likes sort of steampunk stuff will love looking at this and getting a taste of what it. some of the inventions actually look like. Well, I'm pleased that you like it. If you're looking for more information about Julie Hall's or the inventions that didn't change the world, we have links to get you started on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. We'll be right back with more Science for the People right after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to
1: the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is Science for the People, and I'm here now with Sylvia Samira, an independent conservator specializing in globes and author of Globes, 400 Years of Exploration, Navigation, and Power. Welcome, Sylvia.
3: Hello. Now, how did you get
1: interested in globes?
3: Well, it was really a happy accident. I I, um, studied history of art at university and then became very interested in the conservation of works of art on paper, watercolors, prints, and drawings. And so I did a postgraduate course in that. And uh, in my final year, I saw an advert um, from the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich in London. And they were setting up um, a globe conservation program. And they wanted somebody with... Um, experience in paper conservation. So I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And so I applied. And I really didn't know very much about globes at all at the time. Um, so I, did a, I went to a library and got a couple of books out about globes. There weren't very many books. And to my um, astonishment, I was offered the job. And that started me off, and I've been doing it ever since.
1: Oh, now, what is it that you find so fascinating about them?
3: Well, I think there's a lot more to a globe than you might um, initially think. I mean, I think we all know that um, a globe is a map of the world. But in fact, um, celestial globes are actually made long before terrestrial globes because people could look up at the heavens. And so the idea of making a sphere of um, the heavens came before the idea of making a sphere of the earth. So globes started to be made in pairs of globes. You'd have a terrestrial and a celestial globe in the 16th century. And that was, that was something that was really interesting. And just getting to know a little bit about what else globes had to show rather than just the, the actual mapping of the stars or the mapping of the land and the seas. They're just infinitely fascinating. Um, and I think today we just really don't appreciate... Um, how much information they contain or contained in the past. I think they're much simpler now than they used to be.
1: Well, I, I definitely understand the fascination because when I received this book, a friend and I spent probably a good two hours with it and, and some wine uh, just, just pouring over the pictures and they are beautiful. So where Thank do these things, where do these images come from?
3: The book is actually based on the collection of globes at the British Library here in London. And so what I tried to do in the book is um, pull out beautiful globes um, that illustrate the way globes actually developed from when they were first made.
1: Do we know when the very first globe that, that showed the countries and such, when might that have been made?
3: We don't really know when the first terrestrial globe was made. There are references to um, a terrestrial globe being made in the ancient world, but it doesn't survive, and it's unlikely that it showed towns and countries um, in the way that we think of a globe today. The oldest surviving terrestrial globe was made in 1492 in Nuremberg, and it's a beautiful painted globe which shows the world as was known at the time. And, of course, um, in 1492, that was the year Columbus set off from Europe, and so um, America had not yet been discovered. So in fact, it shows the known world in 1492, and at that time there was no America. So if you, according to that globe, if you sailed um, west, you would hit Japan. And then, because that was really the around that time, there was so much exploration going on, interest in the world, um, and. People really wanted to know more and more about um, what was going on in other parts of the world. And then that was really when um, greater interest in maps became um, more apparent and globes um, followed on from that. And so terrestrial globes started to be made in greater numbers. Now, how would
1: the makers of those globes have gotten the information to put on them?
3: From as many sources as they could find obviously the maps that were available to them in their own countries, foreign explorers, accounts, overland travellers such as Marco Polo, they were used. Ancient maps such as um, the maps by Ptolemy, um, who was the kind of culmination of classical thought in the 2nd in the century AD. These maps had been rediscovered and printed for the first time um, around the end of the 15th century well it was the renaissance so there was um, a kind of rediscovery of all these ancient texts and maps and people plundered those really to use in their own um, map making and um, thought so there were many many sources and of course there was a lot of intrigue as well in trying to find um, the latest maps from say the spanish and the portuguese um, so that people could make maps and globes with the latest knowledge, which would obviously make them um, more commercially viable. So there was a lot of competition between map makers to produce the most beautiful and the most up-to-date maps from as many sources as they could possibly find. And, of course, there was a, um, I, think, I think many maps were made up with um, a great deal of speculation. For example, in, if you look at a, a globe in the 18th century, and if, if you look at Africa... Um, it is absolutely full of information right from the, the coastlines right to the middle of central Africa. And of course, nobody had actually been there at that point. So there was no way they could really know what, what it was like. But um, nobody, nobody could disprove it was wrong. So, so a lot of this information was really just completely made up. Um, and it was later on, in fact, Africa becomes um, rather blank in the middle and in fact, um, globe makers want to actually be more accurate in what they are actually representing on the globe. And so they will actually label certain parts of the world as unknown parts, which indicates that they hadn't yet been explored.
1: Now, what would these globes have been used for? Were, were they actually practical items or educational or more decorative?
3: They were multifunctional in a way. They were definitely used for educational purposes, because it was very easy to see the shape of countries on the world and the relationship between different countries and continents. And they, were obviously also, they could also be very decorative, especially um, the large globes in ornate stands. They provided um, a very handsome focus to any room, any grand room in a, in a, a palace, for example, or um, in a library. They, they always looked very good. Um, Smaller globes, when it came to using them on ships, we know that they were carried on ships, but whether they were actually used as a practical tool in navigation, I think it's a bit unlikely because it'd be rather impractical to have a globe on the deck of a ship and to be using it in any practical way. However, having said that, there was no doubt that they could be used as a kind of demonstrational tool for navigators or for teaching sailors or just for showing sailors Um, how latitude and longitude worked and so on.
1: Now, how common would they have been at this point?
3: When printed globes started being made in the early 16th century, they were not very common at all. And in fact, it was really only fairly wealthy people who would be able to afford to buy them, educated wealthy people. But as time grew on, they became much more accessible to many more people. So by the time we get to the 19th century, um, they were being made in much greater quantities and at a much cheaper price so that many more people could actually afford to buy them. And in fact, um, geography became um, a subject that was taught at schools. So Globes became available to school children, and they became much more affordable And that was aided by um, newer techniques in printing. For example, lithography, which was introduced at the end of the um, um, 18th century, enabled globes to be produced much more cheaply than they had been before. Globes um, were made as educational objects, People try to inject a bit of fun into them as well. So you get kind of puzzle globes and globes that you could cut out and and put together. In my book, there are are a couple of globes whereby you can cut them out and paste them together. So you actually have your own globe, but very, very um, inexpensive to buy um, and containing up-to-date geographical information.
1: You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm joined Mm -hmm. by Sylvia Samira, author of Globes. Now we think of of globes as being the the large tabletop kind that you've mentioned or the or the floor models that are beautiful but basically furniture. But there are a number of pocket globes in the book and I love these. Can you
3: talk about them? Yes. I mean pocket globes they they are really beautiful objects to look at. There's a a British, an English maker of globes, Joseph Moxon, and he really kickstarted globe making in the 17th century, and he claims to be the inventor of the pocket globe. Now, a pocket globe, as the name would imply, is a small item that one could put in one's pocket. Um, And he, in fact, he advertised them as being made portable for the pocket. So they tend to be around three inches in diameter. And the idea is that um, you have a little terrestrial globe which sits inside a case which is lined with the celestial globe gauze. a gore being one of the segments of printed paper um, that is pasted onto a globe. Um, so you, you have a, a lovely little cosmos. So you have the terrestrial globe encased in a celestial sphere and you could open it up and take out the terrestrial globe and see, hold it in your hand and look at the world, and then you could also look at the heavens, which encircled this beautiful little um, terrestrial globe. Um, and there was a tradition of making pocket globes in, in England, so there was a succession of pocket globe makers, and other countries produced um, pocket globes too, but not in the same number as in England. There's a beautiful globe in the book by Johannes Hohmann, um which is a German pocket globe. That was um, my
1: favorite one. It's,
3: that Beautiful. is a really, really lovely little globe. Yes. Um, so that's a German pocket globe. But I think that's the only German pocket globe I know about. There are a couple of um, Dutch pocket globes, not actually in the book, but it's really a, a very English thing. And that tradition continued well into the 19th century.
1: Now, could you actually use those? Because the the, the level of detail is beautiful, but also very, very tiny.
3: It's very tiny. And it, I think with any globe, the, the, the um, um, amount of information on it, well, it varies from globe to globe. So some globes contain, I would say, sparse amounts of information, whereas other globes, even tiny ones, contain... Quite an incredible amount of information. I think one of the globes illustrated in my book is um, a, a little globe by um, Newton, who's a well-known globe maker in the um, 19th century. And it's about one and a half inches in diameter. But if you look at it, it, it does contain um, an incredible amount of information.
1: I completely blame you for making me wind up on eBay looking for pocket globes. <laughs> you cannot find them, for reference, in case anybody else wants to go on a wild goose chase. So, well, the pocket globes are obviously my favorites. Uh, but, but which globes in your book are you most attracted to?
3: Well, I think one of my favorite globes is um, a globe by Willem Blau. It's a celestial globe from 1606 which is just such a, a pretty little globe. And in fact, it's, um, I think it's the globe that's illustrated on the jacket of, of the book. It just has such lovely images of the constellations.
1: So is there anything else that you think people absolutely should know about the history of globes?
3: Well, as I said at the start of the interview, I think there's much more to globe celestial or terrestrial than you might initially think they really deserve closer examination. They're they're not just maps of countries or the heavens. There's an awful um, lot more going on. I think when when we look at a globe, it looks perfectly formed. There's this wonderful sphere with all the countries of the world and the stars and constellations laid out. Um, In fact, making a globe um, was quite an elaborate process and the technique that came to be used, it was quite Um, Well, it lasted for almost 400 years. It didn't change very much from the um, early 16th century. So basically, a globe is made in the traditional way is two hemispheres of papier-mâché glued together with a central wooden pillar. And then this is turned in a mould and covered in a plaster skim. And then this is smoothed um, down, so it's very, very um, smooth. Um, and then the paper gauze, um, which are the segments of paper, I think I've already explained the segments of paper where the map is printed, are then pasted over this plast- smooth plaster sphere. And it's all, um, when you look at a globe, they generally look absolutely perfect. But it was actually very um, tricky to get all these segments of paper to line up ec- exactly with each other and so that you had no wrinkles or um, gaps in between these bits of paper. So the actual skill in making a globe was quite considerable, but it was something that um, all globe makers managed to master, um, so that you couldn't really tell the elaborate process that went into making a globe.
1: Do you know if anybody actually hand-makes globes anymore?
3: there are one or two globe makers i believe um making globes not exactly in the traditional manner in that they probably don't make plaster spheres now they might use fiberglass spheres um but very few and far between i think most of the globes people are familiar with now are plastic globes but um but there are all one or two people i think making globes
1: that is definitely too bad because, as I said, these are not just educational pieces. These are these are absolutely works of art.
3: They are works of art, yes. Um, as I say, the heyday of globe-making was really from the 16th century to the 19th century. And some of the globes are really just beautiful, beautiful objects to look at.
1: Great to have you here, Sylvia.
3: It's been a great pleasure speaking to you.
1: And we've linked to Globes, 400 Years of Exploration, Navigation, and Power, on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, you can listen to and comment on all of our past episodes, click the links to connect with us on social media, or subscribe to the show in iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quibilon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell.